through the book of Romans. Uh, today we come to Romans chapter 9. If you remember, we took a little break for the summer, um, and we're back at it uh, starting today. Romans chapter 9. Um, Romans chapter 9. also want to just say thank or welcome uh, to our online folks. I know we have a lot of folks uh, have been checking in with me over the last couple of weeks and said they're going to be checking in with us online until things kind of die down a little bit. So again, that option's always out there, and we want to welcome those folks as part of our worship service this morning as well. Uh, Romans chapter 9, uh, Paul is dealing with a problem, and it's the problem that R Paul has been declaring all these wonderful truths, theological truths, through the first eight chapters. He's talking about how we're justified by faith, not by works. That not, our, our justification before God is not based in our religious performance or jumping through some sort of religious hoops. Uh, but rather it's the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross, and we put our faith and trust in that, and that's all. That's all. There's nothing else that we have to add to it. It's faith in Jesus plus nothing else. And so uh, then he talks about in Romans chapter 8, he says in chapter 8 and verse 1, he says, look, there's therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, that we can't sin our way out of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he declares this crescendo statement at the end of chapter 8. He says, hey, look, um, you know, our salvation with God, that nothing can separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus. And so Paul offers up all these wonderful truths, and we've handled all those truths scripturally over the last several months. Um, and then we come to the issue, the, kind of the elephant in the room of, well, what about the Jewish people? I thought they were God's people. Why is it that the Jewish people have so rejected the Lord Jesus? Why is it that they have uh, basically turned their backs on this Messiah that they had been looking for all this time? And so Paul now turns his attention in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 to address this issue. It is not a, a digression in Paul's thought. It is a, a piece of a, a unit here, 9, 10, and 11, that is very much connected to everything that he's talked about so far. Because if Paul can't answer the question of why did the Jewish people reject Jesus, then that, may, that raises the issue of, well, if, if these people who were the chosen people of God have abandoned the faith, what about me? If God couldn't hold them in his hand, then will God hold me in his hand? And so that's the issue to which Paul turns his attention today. Our text comes Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 9, uh, beginning at verse 1. Here we go. I am speaking the truth in Christ, and I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much. All right, let's just kind of dive in here and walk through these verses. He begins in verse 1. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Paul is wanting to make the point that what he's about ready to say, that, hey, look, I'm telling the truth here. God knows that I'm telling the truth here. In my quiet times, he knows that I've expressed these things to him. And what is it that he's expressed? He says, verse 2, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Some of you um, can relate to this. You can relate to the unceasing anguish. Some of us have walked through life and periods of life where we've just had anguish in our hearts, where every day we've woken up and there's been just this thing that's been in front of us that just causes us to be in great sorrow. And the Apostle Paul says, that's the way it is. And why is it that Paul is feeling this unceasing anguish that just won't seem to go away? He says, verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ 
for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul is pointing out the fact that the Jewish people, Paul's people, the people that Paul had grown up and gone to school with, the people that Paul had grown up in the towns with, the people that Paul knew, I mean, his own family have rejected their Messiah, have rejected Jesus Christ. And Paul is acknowledging here that because of their rejection of Jesus Christ, that they are heading for a disaster in eternity. And this is, causes Paul unceasing anguish. He's in constant sorrow over this day and night it just weighs on paul how he feels um, and how sorrowful he is Um, he goes on to say in verse four that they are israelites and to them belong the adoption the covenants uh, the glory the shekinah glory these are the people that saw god's glory um, radiating through the face of moses they were at the base of mount sinai they saw the mountain shake they experienced the glory of god they knew about the glory of god there in the back of the tabernacle later in the back of the temple they knew about the um, all these sorts of things the giving of the law was given given to them the worship of god they went to the temple they would make sacrifices for their sin they would bring sacrifices of praise before the lord and they experienced all these things from generation to generation to generation literally uh, up to this point about 12 12, 1400 years at this point he goes on to point out verse 5 he says to them belong the patriarchs abraham isaac jacob those great men of god they had taught their children about these men they had been this has been the history lesson that they had studied in school all of these years it was so knit into the fiber of these people the jewish people and paul says what is just so shocking to me is that these people who knew god so well and knew him so closely rejected their messiah he even goes on to say there in verse 5 and from their race the jewish race according to the flesh that is out of their bloodline is the christ jesus the messiah that they had been looking for all these times all the, all along ever since abraham had been made that third promise that a deliverer would come that would deliver god's people from their sins and they've been looking for him and jesus arrived he walked right underneath of their noses and they didn't recognize him or in some cases they just flat rejected him and so paul says this is just tearing him up inside and so it's now to that question that paul turns his attention well why did the jewish people reject jesus and so i got a little outline for you here of what romans chapter what's going on in romans chapter 9 and in this uh in this chapter paul verses 6 through 13 he gives the first of um, his responses as to why the jewish people rejected jesus he says there um, that not all people who are born as an Israelite, not all people who are born Jewish are part of the family of God, are children of God. The second reason that he gives, verses 14 through um, 18, is that God is the one who shows mercy in this world. Mercy by its nature is undeserved, and so it's God's prerogative to show mercy to whom he wants to. And then the third reason that he gives, the last part of the section of chapter 9, is this idea that didn't we know that this was predicted in the scriptures, that the Jewish people would reject their Messiah? And so he addresses these three issues. And so that's what we want to turn to now. Let's start at verse 6. We're going to charge all the way through this chapter today. Maybe a little bit long, but lunch is coming soon. All right, here we go. Verse 6, it says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Uh, Paul's pointing out here that, look, just because the Jewish people have rejected Jesus, this is not an indication, he says here at the front end of all this, this is not an indication that God has been unfaithful. This is not an indication that the word of God has failed anyone. Let me explain why. Again, he's got to give a good reason as to why the Jewish people, he's got to give a satisfactory reason, because if he can't give a satisfactory reason why the chosen people of God have fallen away from God, 
And Paul's got a real problem. You know, the rest of Romans chapter 1 through 8 begins to crumble. So he says, verse 6, to answer that, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Remember, Paul is writing to Jewish people here. He's talking to uh, Jewish people who have become Christians. They're part of this church in Rome. They're also Gentiles who have become Christians. But his audience, many of them, are people who are Jewish by heritage, but they have become believers in Jesus, so they're Jewish Christians. And he says, look, not everybody who's descended from Israel is a part of Israel. That is a part of the promise, is a recipient of the promises that were made to Abraham, is a child of God. And the Jewish audience would have said, yeah, we understand that. Of course we do. We got tax collectors in our town, and we, we, we don't think those people are going to heaven. And you see all through the scriptures in the gospels, story after story after story of people who the Jewish people said, yeah, they're not in. We know we are in, but we know they're not in. And so the idea, the notion that people who are born ethnic Israelites are not part of the children of God, that was not a foreign concept to them. And so he says, verse 7, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. In other words, again, because you are born Jewish does not mean that you get to inherit all the promises that God made the Jewish people. Um, So with regard to our overarching question, which is, why do the Jewish people reject Jesus? Well, it's not that... um, out of bounds to say that, well, not all the Jewish people were children of God before the new covenant was struck, and it's no surprise that there were Jewish people after the covenant was struck that would not be children of God. So that's no real big surprise. Um, So in other words, just because your birth certificate says Jerusalem, Israel, doesn't mean that you're going to heaven. Paul continues this argument. He says, verse 8, he says, this means that that it is not the children of the flesh, ethnic Jews, who are children of God, but rather the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So Paul is making a distinction here between ethnic Israel and the children of God. Um, he says, uh, verse 10, another example, and not, well, let me, before I go there, let me just make a couple comments about verse 8. Um, Abraham had a son named Isaac. Was Isaac the only son that Abraham had? No. He had Ishmael before he had Isaac. But the blessing, the promises flowed through his son Isaac and did not flow through his son Ishmael. So again, just because somebody's born in the bloodline, just somebody, because somebody belongs to ethnic Israel, just because they come from the bloodline of Abraham, doesn't mean that they're part of the promises of God. Uh, verse 10, another example. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Now, Rebekah married Isaac, and she had two twin sons. Do we know their names? All right, Jacob and Esau. Um, Esau was the older of the twins, and Jacob came out after. Uh, He was clutching onto the heel of his slightly older brother. Um, But in that part of the world, at that point in time in history, the eldest would have been the one who received the double portion of blessing, would have been the one who received the inheritance, the one through whom the blessing would have flowed, the promises should have flowed. Um, however, look at verse 11, those, though those children were not yet born, key phrase, we're going to come back to that here in just a second, though those two children were not yet born yet, um, uh, verse, let me keep reading here, though those children were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Look at what was said to Rebekah before those children were born. Verse 12, Paul's making the case here. He says, verse 12, she was told, the older will serve the younger. So before those children were born, go back to verse 11 for a moment. 
that they were not yet born. They had not done either good or bad. They had not done anything to merit God making a choice of one over the other. For God to say, you know what, this guy over here has the right kind of demeanor. This guy over here uh, has a heart for me. This guy over here uh, just seems to be more obedient to his parents. He just seems to be more respectful. And this one over here, not so much. And so we're going to go with the one that, you know, he's kind of more elevated than the other one. Seems to be the better choice for us. And so Paul's making the case that, no, no, no. Neither one of them had walked on the face of the earth yet. Neither one of them had proved their worth. Neither one of them had shown any kind of behavior, whether it was good or bad. They were not yet born. And yet God comes to Rebecca and says, I'm choosing the one over the other. Um, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Now, did God really hate Esau? No, God didn't hate Esau. Um, this is perhaps, we might refer to it as a statement of hyperbole. This is Paul quoting from Malachi here. Similar to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 14 and verse uh, 26. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, his brother and sister, even his own life, he cannot be one of my disciples. Jesus is making a statement of hyperbole that there can be no rival. Right? No one else gets to take the top spot in our lives. No one. And Jesus said, unless you want to be one of my followers, unless you want to be someone through whom I'm working and whose the Holy Spirit is flowing through your life, I can't have any rivals. And so we can see that verse there in verse 13, the same, that God is making a statement of hyperbole, Jacob I loved. In other words, Jacob was going to be the one through whom the blessings would flow, and Esau, rather, would be the one through whom uh, the curses would follow. Um, back to verse 11. Paul writes, though, the twins were, though the twins were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, again, not even born, have no basis on which to make this decision, um, and yet God chooses one over the other. And Paul calls this in verse 11 God's purpose of election. Again, not because of works performed by either of the boys, but because of God who calls or by God who decides. Now, theologians down through the ages have referred to this as the doctrine of the elect or the doctrine of election. Um, let me give you a definition of what this is. This comes from Wayne Grudem's book, Systematic Theology, and I just want to put a little plug in there that buy the book. It's about 1,400 pages of just delicious theology that I know doesn't sound all that great, but there's really the way it's laid out. Any question that's ever been asked, theological question that's ever been asked, is in, contained in this book. And it, Wayne Grudem is what's partly so amazing about it is he's not the editor. Typically, books like this have an editor, you know, lots of different contributing authors. He wrote it all. I mean, it's just amazing to think that all that information was in this guy's brain. He understood all this. But anyhow, um, just a great resource. I would encourage you to check it out. But he's, here's the definition of election that he gives. He says, an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. So basically, what that, the definition of what doc, the doctrine of the election espouses here is that God chooses, he picks winners and losers, and who gets to go to heaven and who gets to go to hell. That's what the doctrine of election represents. I mean, I'm using the words that are right there, uh, the definition of it. It's the ascribed definition by anybody who's a Calvinist background, Reformed background. They'll say, yeah, you know, that's, that's what's taught. Now, for you and I, we may say, that doesn't sound fair. In fact, even most Reformed theologians that I know would say, that's not fair. 
Um, how is it that God is picking winners and losers? How is it that God is sentencing some people before the creation of the world, before they're even born yet, before there's any merit for them to have God to make a choice? How, can, how do we explain that? How, how do we deal with that? Um, is this just the way it is, or can I? is there some, some other wiggle room here way of thinking about this? Well, Wesleyan Arminian theologians have been um, insistent uh, since the time of Wesley that human free will is a fact of life, and that we all have a decision to make, a choice to make, as to whether or not Jesus is going to be our Lord and our Savior. God doesn't make that decision for us. And so Wesleyan Arminian theologians are then, when they come to this text, are left with, well, how do I deal with this? How do I explain this? And so for many, um, at least in my, leading up to my lifetime and then partly in my lifetime, um, Many theologians and Bible scholars have just ignored this passage of Scripture and just went, or, you know, let's just go to the, let's go to the next chapter, right? Um, and they just said, you know what, we're, just, we're not going to handle that. In fact, I was just curious because I was a Bible major when I was in college. Literally, that was what my major was. I was a Bible, Bible major. And so I had a class called Romans and Galatians, and I was curious. I still have my notes in my office, and so I pulled out the folder with all my notes in it, and I was flipping through there, and I saw notes upon notes upon notes from Romans chapters 1 through 8. And it was just wonderful just reading through some of those notes. And then, I, then the notes pick up at Romans chapter 12 all the way through the end of the book, through chapter 16, and it's just notes upon notes upon notes. But then there's this little section in my notes from our professor uh, a little, I don't know if you want to call it an asterisk or whatever, but it's just a little section subtitled uh, Romans chapters 11 through, or 9 through 11, and just a summary statement, Paul's treatment of the present, of tr- present Jewish uh, the unbelief and their future. And then he went on to Romans chapter 12. <laughs> and I thought to myself this week, and I'm not tooting my own horn in here at all, but I just thought, what a coward. I mean, he was a thoroughgoing Wesleyan theologian, Wesley theologian or Wesleyan Arminian uh, theology guy, and he was—that was his tradition and his heritage—and and and I just thought, I mean, we're in the class, right? Romans and Galatians, and you can't even deal with that text here. Um, but in any case, that's what he chose to do, and honestly, that's what I've done over much of my life in looking at this text. I didn't know what to do with it, and so I would just pass it over and just go on to the next thing. Um, well, some Wesleyan Arminian theologians have um, come up with a theory. Um, I don't know how old it is. I'm going to say in the last maybe three decades ago or so, this became more prominent, and it's called the prescience theory. I'm going to put a, a definition of it up here on the screen for you. The word prescience or science comes from the term scienta, which is a Latin term meaning knowledge. And so science is the pursuit of knowledge. Pre is a prefix, which means before. And so what we have here in prescience is foreknowledge. It's the knowledge that comes before. And so what Wesleyan Arminian theologians have argued is God, they acquiesce when they read Romans chapter 9. And they say, you know what? We see election here or some sort of selection. And so they acquiesce and say, we'll go ahead and go along with that. He says in the definition there, affirms that God does elect individuals to salvation, but that the basis of this election is that the grounds of the election is rooted in God's prior awareness of what people will do when they are presented with the gospel. So it's the notion that um, God's 
God's selection or his election is based not in his sovereignty, but rather in his foreknowledge. That God knows ahead of time that if he knocks this guy off the horse, the Apostle Paul, and presents him with the gospel, he will respond in the affirmative. And so on that basis, God knocked him off the horse. Because, I mean, otherwise God was going to go around and knock like three dozen people off a horse and hope that one of them sticks. But the prescience theory theologians say, hey, look, God knew in advance because he's omniscient, because he can see the end from the beginning. He knows who's going to respond in the affirmative when the gospel is presented to them. Um, And there's example after example all through the scriptures. Paul only points out a couple here of Esau and Jacob, how one was selected uh, and the other was, you know, the dark side of that. We're going to deal with the dark side of selection and the dark side of predestination next week. Um, But the dark side of that is that Esau is sentenced to hell. And it seems like, again, God is picking winners and losers. How do we how to explain that? Well, again, with a prescience theory, they say, hey, look, God knows in advance when he presents certain people with the gospel that they'll respond in the affirmative um, and others that he won't respond in the affirmative. Um, and so that's the prescience theory. We'll talk about that more over the coming weeks. Um, I have a little bit of a different theory. I'll just go ahead and pitch it out there. It's not Wayne Grudem's book, so um, call it fresh and new. Um, but uh, it's, a, it's a theory of limited election, limited election. That indeed we do see through history, uh, we look at the story of Samson in the Bible, in the book of Judges, how Samson, before he was even born, his mother came before the Lord and prayed and asked for God to give her a son, and God gave her that son and made some predictions about that son, again, well in advance of that son ever having laid foot on this earth yet. We see people like Abraham, we see people like Jeremiah, who said, before I was even formed in the womb, you knew me. And so we see evidence throughout the scriptures, David in Psalm chapter 139, that you knit me together in my mother's womb. Again, we see evidence throughout the scriptures of of people in the Bible whom God foreknew, whom God saw that things are going to go in a really good way if we present them, and God did. Um, And I would dare say that that same patterns continued through history, that people like John Wesley God tapped and said, we need this guy on our team. People like Martin Luther, people like Billy Graham, that God knew he could accomplish great things in his salvific, for his salvific purposes in the world when the gospel was presented to certain people. And so I see a, I see a limited election, and we'll, get, we'll unpack that more in the coming weeks, and we'll see that play out in Israel and its history and its future as well. Um, Still, the question, this does not seem fair. I mean, you're, you're, you're picking winners and losers here, God, even if it's just a handful of people. You're picking winners and losers. You're telling Jacob where he's going to go and Esau where he's going to end up. And this just doesn't seem fair. And so Paul, anticipating this response, says in verse 14, What shall we say then? Is there injustice in God? That is, is there unfairness in God on his part? Again, the boys weren't even born yet. You're picking winners and losers. How is that fair? And so Paul responds, by no means. In other words, of course God's not unjust. Well, we'll explain that then. I mean, it's one thing just to say that this is the way it is, but now give us, a, give us good grounds for it biblically. So Paul says, well, you remember when God said to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. Paul's pointing out here that mercy is not something that God dispenses because somebody deserved it. 
by definition, mercy is undeserved. He's stating that God gives mercy because God, maybe according to the prescience theory, knows that if I give mercy here, it'll turn out really well, and they'll respond in the affirmative. So whatever God's motivation is, it's up to God to decide where he's going to dispense mercy. I love um, uh, verse uh, 16. It says, so then God's mercy depends not on human will or exertion, uh, that is on human effort, but on God who has mercy. And then I love the um, explanation that R.C. Sproul gives. R.C. Sproul says um, in his commentary on, on Romans, he says, is God obligated to show mercy to everyone? Again, mercy by, by definition is undeserved. And he says, for example, if the President of the United States exercises executive clemency and pardons somebody in prison, is he then obligated to pardon everybody? We would say, of course not. But again, according to our perhaps prescience theory, God, the president, knows if I show mercy here, they'll respond in the affirmative to that, and it'll work out really well. And so God, like the president of the United States, gets to issue who he wants to show mercy to. And in, again, according to my theory, limited selection, if he decides he wants to show mercy in some situations, then that's God's prerogative to do that. Um, all right, back to our question. How did the Jewish people miss Jesus as the Christ? Number one, because not all the Jews are children of God. Number two, because God's mercy is selective for a reason. He is working out his plan to save as many people as possible. It's his prerogative to dispense it where he wants. And finally, number three, because this was all predicted in the scriptures. Didn't you know? And so Paul takes us into the Old Testament. But first of all, he responds with a rebuke to the question itself. He says, verse 19, You will say to me then, Paul anticipating another objection, why does God still find fault? In other words, if God has already chosen Jer Jacob, and he's chosen Jeremiah, and he hasn't chosen Esau, then how can God hold Esau's bad behavior against him? See, if we're just, if we're just puppets and God's pulling the strings, and, and we're just all subject to God's sovereignty and God, everything happens in the world exactly according to what God wants. If, if we're just puppets, how can God hold me accountable for my bad behavior? And so Paul anticipates this question. He asks it, and his response is a rebuke. He says, uh, verse 19, for who, can, or for who can resist his will? He says, verse 20, but who are you, and I'm going to insert, oh, little man, to answer back to God. Paul says, you're not God. I'm not God. It's, it's not up to us to find the explanation as to why God acts in the way that he acts. And he reminds us of this. He goes on to say in verse 21, he says, has the pot, or I'm sorry, still in verse 20, he says, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? In other words, the pot, the piece of clay that's on the potter's wheel is saying, you're making me into a dish. I don't want to be a dish. I want to be a pitcher. We don't have that right. We don't have that ability. It's the hands of the maker, the hands of the potter, the hands of the creator to fashion into whatever he wants us to be fashioned into. It's not our role to question that. Paul says, but since you asked, Verse 22, what if, just throwing this out there, what if God, desiring to show his wrath 
and to make known his power. He did the same thing with Pharaoh. Has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Remember, he's writing to Jewish people here about the Jewish people. He's writing to Jewish Christians about people who have rejected Jesus. And he says, what if God has the Jewish people who have rejected Jesus, and they are these vessels of wrath. They're going to receive God's wrath. God's anger is going to be poured out into them. Um, What if God um, is up to something? Verse 23, in order, what was he up to? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. And those vessels of mercy are those who would respond in the affirmative to Jesus as Messiah. Now, um, there's some, I just wanted to point this out. I don't have this on our slide, so y'all just listen. Uh, this comes from Matthew chapter 27. Um, this is where the, Jesus is before the crowds. Um, he's, being, he's been on trial. Um, he's at the house of Pontius Pilate. Barabbas is there. Jesus is there. Jesus has been beat with a cat of nine tails. He's got a cap of thorns on his head. His face has been beaten to unrecognizable. And Pilate says, I don't see any reason why we should send this man on to be killed on the cross. He's been punished for whatever reason. We don't even know what that reason was, but he's been, he's been beaten. And, and I don't see any reason why we should choose this. This guy over here, he's a known criminal. He's a murderer, Barabbas. This guy over here, I don't see anything that he's done wrong. And the crowd shout, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate, he's, he's not convinced. And they continue to shout, crucify him. And finally, listen to what the Jewish people say. Just listen here with your ears. They say, in response, they say, and all the people answered back, his blood be on us and on our children. The Jewish people said of Jesus' day, I'm not talking about Jews three centuries later, Jews a millennial later. I'm not talking about the Jewish people today. Those Jewish people standing there in that courthouse block said, let his blood be on us. We'll take responsibility for it and on our children. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 and Luke chapter 21, recording both of those, that this generation will not pass away before the things which, about which I have spoken will take place. The generation is 40 years, um, according to the Jewish people, or in their history. And so 40 years from the time that the Lord Jesus will be resurrected from the dead and ascend back up into heaven, guess what happened? Titus and the Romans marched down into Israel, decimated the countryside, slaughtered the Jewish people, encircled the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD, laid siege to the city. People that tried to escape, the Romans would capture them and nail them to the city walls. Over a million people were slaughtered in the city of Jerusalem. And just as Jesus had predicted, not one stone of that temple was left upon another. They completely devastated. And so we see the scripture fulfilled. Again, we'll get into more of that as we go into Romans chapter 11. But just wanted to point that out here, that they were prepared as vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction. And they were going to be destroyed for the choice that they had made to reject the Messiah. Paul's saying, and then he goes on to say, he says, look, this was, this was predicted in the scriptures. He says, uh, verse 25, he says, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. 
That is, people who are Gentiles, people who are outside of this faith, they're going to be called my people. And then he says in verse 27, he says, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Again, we'll get into the concept of remnant here in the coming weeks. But Isaiah is saying, hey, look, not all these Jewish people. In fact, in mass, Isaiah predicts they will reject the Messiah. And only a remnant, that means just a few, will be held out of that fire, out of that judgment. All right, so Paul's saying the point, let me kind of sum up um, what we've covered so far. In response to the question, why are the Jewish people not turning to Jesus? Why have they rejected Jesus? Number one, not all the Jews are born children of the promise. Just because you're born Jewish doesn't mean that you're a child of God. And secondly, number two, the Jews have not turned toward God because God has not shown them mercy yet. God has the right, he has the prerogative to show mercy where he wants to show mercy. And then finally, number three, this should be no surprise to us. This rejection of the Messiah by the Jewish people in mass was predicted in our scriptures. Doesn't change how Paul feels about it. It just burdens his heart, it tears him up. But nevertheless, this is what God said was coming. All right, well, that's our treatment of this text for today. I know that's a lot to take in, and we've talked about some really uh, intense subject matter, but in any case, that's our treatment of it today, and so um, that means it's time for us to ask our most important question, what difference does all this make to my life? Well, I got two things for you, and then we're going to head for lunch. I know I'm long. Um, first difference that it makes, um, Paul says, if you go back to what we read at the beginning, Romans chapter 9 and verse 2, he says that I have great sorrow, and I have un- unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul just walks around, I mean, day and night, it just burdens him he's just torn up about this and of course his fellow jews that have become believers they feel the same way they've experienced the new life and the new covenant that they have in the lord jesus but they're seeing their family members they're seeing their neighbors they're seeing their nation not pursuing and following after the lord jesus and they know what that means they know that that means that they're heading for a disaster in eternity and it just tears them up it breaks their heart he says uh, again verse Three, why is that? For he says, I wish that I could myself be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Um, I don't know that I'd be willing to do that. Just, I, I sat with this text this week and had a little self examination, and the thought of giving up my spot in heaven for somebody else, I was like, oh, I don't know about that. I mean, we're talking about eternal damnation forever the choice is made you're gone to hell and there's no purgatory no figuring that thing out and getting out of there one day paul's saying i would wish upon myself and he says god knows as my witness i've prayed this in my prayers that i could take their place he says but again i don't know that i'd be willing to do that now what makes it Interesting. You say, well, that's the Apostle Paul, right? I mean, he's the Apostle Paul. I mean, we would expect so much of him. But um, what's interesting about this is, you know, for you and I, I've never been to heaven. We sing songs like I'll Fly Away. Those are wonderful songs, but I've never been there. I've only read about it. The Apostle Paul tells us he's actually been there. Second Corinthians chapter 12, he says that he was caught up into paradise. And he doesn't give us any descriptors of what he experienced there. He only says that the Holy Spirit prevents him from saying anything about it. 
know, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we went up to Maryland. I officiated the wedding for one of my cousins. And uh, we stayed in a really nice hotel. And the hotel had a really nice breakfast area. We'd come down in the mornings and have like a nice breakfast. And this really, yeah, it was nice and new and stuff. And the carpet was all new and the place smelled really good. And they had extra towels for you. And uh, the, the workout center had uh, two treadmills so Claire and I could run in the mornings next to one another. And it had, it had windows out onto, the, out onto the green, you know, grass outside. And it was just all a bright and cheery place. Well, a couple of days later, we decided, you know, we want to go to the beach while we're here. We drove all the way up there. Might as well go to the beach. And we'll stay there for a couple of nights at the beach and then come on back home. And uh, so we went to the hotel at the place at the beach and we drove up and it just, it just wasn't all there. You know, it just didn't have all the pop and the zing and the newness that the other place had. And, uh, and, and we got inside and and, and, the, and the workout center had one treadmill, and it was in a room with no windows. It was just kind of dark and drab, and I thought, I don't want to come down here and run in the morning. And, and some of the people who were, like, running around there, you know, they were kind of like, eh, I'm not really sure I really trust this, this area or whatever. But it was the, the reason why we chose it is because it was the cheapest hotel <laughs> in the area. And I just thought, well, yeah, it'll be fine. And, uh, but when we got there, I thought, ah, really not. I'd really rather the other one. But you know, uh, which we ended up only staying one night there and, and drove on down the road to another place, <laughs> canceled that reservation. But again, Paul was there. He knew what he was going to miss out on. And sometimes I wonder about this. You know, I, I want to share Jesus with people. And I know it's tough to share Jesus with people. I wonder if I'm going to lose a raise on this or if I'm going to lose a promotion on this or if my neighbor's going to hate me and never speak to me again if I invite them to church or if I talk to them about how Jesus and the things he's done for me in my life. But most of that for us is just an inconvenience. And here the Apostle Paul is willing to suffer eternal damnation for people to come to Christ. Friends, we need to be willing to suffer in the least little inconveniences. Something for us to think about. I know a second difference that this makes to your life and to mine. Uh, go back to verse 4, chapter 9, verse 4. We're almost done here. I know their stomachs are growling. Chicken's hot. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. I mean, all these things they had. All these things they knew. They knew who God was. The rest of the world was living. You know, God to them was just some far-off figure. But they had the details. They had been to the tabernacle. They had been to the temple. They had made the worship. They had the law. They were on track. They were in the church. And yet, Paul says, they're so far from God. You know, theologians have what they refer to as the visible church and the invisible church. The invisible church, uh, theologians say, is made up of people who have joined a church, people who attend church or have some connection to church. Maybe it's uh, you know, their grandmother's church or however it might be. But they refer to the invisible church as the people who have really put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And I think that this text should cause all of us to just take a moment of personal inventory and say, Am I part of the visible church? Because there's a lot of people, a lot of Jewish people, who thought they were heading for an eternity in heaven. And they discovered just the opposite. Am I part of the visible church? 
or am I part of the invisible church? Say, well, my, you know, I ask somebody every once in a while, tell me about your relationship with Jesus. Oh, I, I'm a member at First Church. Or I, I go to Mass. I, I say the things and do what I need to do. Tell me about your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that he was resurrected from the dead? If so, the Bible says, Romans 10 and verse 9, you will be saved. Let's pray together. Most gracious God, we thank you for presenting us today with your eternal truths. Anytime, Lord, we interact with eternal truths, it does something to the inside of us. It stirs, it prompts, it challenges, it encourages. Lord, if you're speaking to us today, if your Holy Spirit is knocking on our heart's door, pointing out some things that maybe we need to get right, pointing out that maybe, just maybe, we're part of a group, we're part of the visible church, but we've not put our true faith and trust in you. God, whatever it may be, wherever you're speaking to us today, we just ask that in this moment of quiet, that you would prompt our hearts, that you would guide our prayers, and that we would fully surrender ourselves to you. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We give you this space. It's yours. Work in our hearts through it. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.